0: Volume three, chapter one of Mr. Hogarth's will. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mr. Hogarth's will by Catherine Helen Spence, Volume three, chapter one. Mr. Brandon's second proposal to Elsie and its fate. On Mr. Brandon's arrival at Melbourne, after a longer voyage than he had expected, in a ship with such a high character as the one he had sailed in, he hurried up to Barragong, and was much gratified to find things there did not look so badly as he had been led to expect. It was his overseer's want of confidence in himself that had made him exaggerate everything that was going wrong, or was likely to go wrong. In fact, Mr. Phillips's affairs were suffering much more from the want of the master's eye than his— but Dr. Grant had a better opinion of his own management, and wrote more cheerful accounts. Brandon regretted that Powell had left his employment, for if he had been in charge of Barragong, there might have been three more happy months in England for his master. As his affairs were really in a sufficiently satisfactory state, he felt that he must write to Elsie Melville, renewing his offer of marriage, and endeavouring as far as he could give her confidence in the stability of his character." How exceedingly awkward he felt it to be to have to write this instead of saying it! How incomparably better such things are done by word of mouth, particularly when one is not a ready and clever letter-writer! He would, in the personal interview, have felt the effect of one sentence before he ventured on another. He would have assisted his halting phrases by all the advantages of tone, gesture, and expression of countenance. Though he had failed once in his attempt to win her affections, he had been far more stupid than he was now, and he was now more anxious for success. The more he had thought over the person, the manners, and the character of Elsie Melville, the more convinced he was that she was the one woman in the world for him, but he was by no means so sanguine of being accepted as he had been, particularly when he had only the pen to trust to. There was no saying what so clever and so literary a girl as Elsie Melville was would think of his blundering declaration. The paper looked cold, and blank, and uninviting, It really was hard to make it the only means of telling her how much he loved her. No kind wishes towards the overseer, whose fears and scruples had hurried him away, or towards Miss Phillips, who had interrupted him when he was about to say something he had hoped Elsie could not mistake, accompanied the half-dozen different attempts at a love-letter, which were written before he could please himself. Emily was his friend. Jane, he thought, would be his friend, too. Elsie was really a kind-hearted girl, and if he could only convince her that he would be miserable if she refused him, she might pity him a little. He had not the same objections to a little pity that she had on that day in the railway carriage, when he had been so confident of success. But when he reflected on what Peggy might have said with truth about him, and when he put to that the fact that immediately after his refusal by Elsie he had devoted himself to Miss Phillips, there was no doubt that Elsie had some cause to suspect the steadiness of his principles. It was difficult by writing to hint at these things without saying too much, but they must not be passed over in silence either. At last the letter was written and committed to the country post-office nearest to Barragong. Not that he was satisfied with it, but he must not lose the mail. If she was good enough to accept of him, she was to draw upon him for a specified sum for passage-money and outfit, and come out in the mail-steamer following her answer. It was not a brilliant letter, but it was honest and straightforward. However, as Elsie had sailed for Melbourne before it reached England, it was of the less consequence what it was. Pending her answer, Brandon felt very unsettled. He could not set himself to work systematically, and all the neighbours said that his visit to England had spoiled him for a colonist, as it did with most people. He missed his pleasantest neighbour, Mr. Phillips, and he missed the children though Dr. Grant in one direction and Mr. McIntyre in another, though they were ten times better than the Phillipses, Brandon did not feel that they could make up to him for their absence. Dr. Grant was certainly mismanaging, to a considerable extent, Mr. Phillips's business, and muddling it as he did his own affairs. He had now been many years in the sheep-farming line, and in the best of times, for he had bought very cheap, much cheaper than either Phillips or Brandon, and he had got quite as large a capital to start with but he had a bad way of managing the men on his stations. He gave the same wages as other people, certainly, for he could not help that, but he always gave them with a grudge, and seemed to think his employees were picking his pocket. He had a harsh and dictatorial way of giving orders, very different from Brandon's and Phillips's pleasant manner, and he consequently had never been well served. His men had been the first to leave at the time of the diggings, and the consequences had been most disastrous. From sheer want of hands, he had sacrificed one of his runs with the sheep on it to Powell, and now he grudged to see how very handsomely Powell had been repaid for his money and time in this transaction. The fortune that Powell had made ought to have been his, Dr. Grant's own, instead of filling the pockets of a man who had only sprung from the ranks. The same style of mismanagement was carried into Mr. Phillips's affairs, and yet when Brandon relieved Dr. Grant of the burden he had so unwillingly taken up, the latter felt rather hurt, for he had a handsome salary for the charge of Wiriwilta and the other stations, and he would certainly miss the money and besides, he thought it showed a want of confidence in himself on Phillips's part at Wiriwilta. However, there was a feeling of pleasure at the exchange, and Brandon had the satisfaction of really benefiting his friend without taking any very great deal of trouble in this restless state of mind. He had great pleasure in the society of Edgar, who attached himself to his uncle with quiet fidelity. He soon learned to ride, and to ride fearlessly and far. He learned, too, to use his limbs, his ears, and his eyes, so that Brandon found he really had a head on his shoulders, which he had been rather doubtful of when the lad had been kept so constantly at his books. One day, when the boy had been talking with enthusiasm of Australian life, and expressing his longing after more adventures, his uncle, who also was eager for change, proposed to Edgar an overland journey together to Adelaide, He had heard that some particularly fine sheep were to be had in South Australia, and he wished to add this variety to his own flocks as well as to those of Mr. Phillips. He had always had a great wish to see the Adelaide side, and this journey would amuse and employ him till he could get his answer from Elsie. If she accepted him and came out as he wished without delay, he might never have another opportunity for making the visit, for he would not be inclined to leave her for a while at any rate. Edgar was delighted with the proposal, and helped his uncle with the few simple preparations for their long ride with a vigour and despatch that showed he had the stuff in him for a good bushman. How his tender mother would have trembled at the thought of the perils and hardships of such a journey, but as she knew nothing about it till it was safely over, she was spared all anxiety. Brandon was not altogether insincere when he told Elsie and the Edinburgh ladies that the finest prospect he ever saw in Victoria was the prospect of getting out of it, but the present pleasure made him forget many past ones. He had a real enjoyment in the bush life he then talked so contemptuously about. Camping out was to him no hardship, and to Edgar it was a delightful novelty. It was varied by nights spent at sheep-stations, where a hospitable welcome generally awaited them, and an amount of comfort varying according to circumstances. When they crossed the Victorian border and came to the South Australian side, the welcome appeared to be equally hearty. Edgar Holmes could not help admiring the want of suspicion and the liberality of these absolute strangers. Brandon went about his purchase of sheep on his way to Adelaide, and made what he thought a very satisfactory bargain. It was to be a joint speculation between himself and Mr. Phillips, and he was sure it would turn out very well. When he had left directions as to delivery, he and his nephew went down to Adelaide to see what they thought of the little colonial capital. Edgar was charmed with Adelaide and preferred it out and out to Melbourne, but as he had only passed through the latter and had got acquainted with none of the people there, his preference was perhaps not worth much. Brandon, however, could not help confessing that the Adelaide men had some cause for the patriotism so strongly and, as he had thought, so tiresomely expressed at the time of the diggings. It had less bustle than Melbourne and certainly was not so wealthy, but it was a quiet, cheap, and hospitable place, and its prosperity rested on a very solid basis. The amount of cultivation, both agricultural and horticultural, contrasted favourably with that of Melbourne, which had been almost exclusively pastoral till the gold diggings broke out, and had many drawbacks in the shape of land regulations to its becoming a corn- and wine-bearing country. Brandon took up his abode at the York Hotel, of course, and met with some pleasant people in and about Adelaide, some of them he had known in London, and they introduced him to others. If his heart had not been fixed at this present time on Elsie Melville, he might have taken a fancy to one of the Adelaide girls whom he met. They were not so formidable in the array of their accomplishments and acquirements as the modern English young lady. They were frank, agreeable, and not ignorant of domestic matters, and they had no apparent horror of the bush. But Brandon's affections were really engaged, and he put considerable restraint on his flirting powers during this visit, which all engaged men ought to do, but which, I must say, I have found very few engaged men do. They feel so perfectly safe themselves that they care very little for what construction other people may put on their attentions, or on their polite speeches. Brandon had sent directions for Mr. Talbot to get his letters and forward them to him in Adelaide, for he was now daily expecting Elsie's answer. In case of his being accepted, he would cross over to Melbourne in time to receive her from the next mail-steamer, he would marry her there, and take her home to Barragong, and thus save himself two long land journeys. But the mail-steamer had come with the Adelaide mails, and the next after that with his own letters, but not a word from Elsie or from any of the Phillipses. He had had a few lines from Emily the preceding month, to say that dear little Eva was dead, and that they were all getting better. The address was either in Jane's handwriting or in Elsie's, but he took it for granted that it was Elsie's, and had treasured it up in consequence of that supposition. But this month there was not a word from any of them. There had been plenty of time for an answer, for his letter had been sent via Marseilles, so that Elsie had had ten days clear to make up her mind and reply to what she ought to have thought an important communication. It was using him extremely ill to treat his letter with so much contempt. He was never more near being angry in his life. It was strange that Elsie Melville, whose manner was so remarkably gentle and winning, should on two important occasions have treated him with such marked discourtesy. No doubt his letter was not worth very much in itself, but to him it was of great consequence. If she wanted a month for consideration, why not write and tell him so? Or, if she feared to commit herself, she might have got Jane to write. Could she have taken the fever? That was a solution, but a very sad one, of her conduct." Jane would certainly have written in that case if she had not got the fever too. He would alter his plans, he would go back overland, or, rather, he would sail up the Murray, and not pass through Melbourne at all. So he took his passage in Edgar's by one of the Murray steamers, and felt that, if he was not a very ill-used man, he ought to feel a very unhappy one. End of Volume 3, Chapter 1